my hope is that as we understand the biology of these heterogeneous syndromes that we take care of in the ICU better, that we will get closer over the next five to 10 years to being able to target our treatments to the actual biology of what patients are experiencing and not just their sort of clinical syndromic diagnosis. Welcome to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective Podcast. My name is Dominic Pepper, and in this podcast, we interview leaders and expert clinicians in critical care. We ask them to share their insights about relevant critical care topics. And for today, we go to San Francisco to discuss subphenotypes in ARDS. Before we get started, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, sure thing. My name is Carolyn Calfee, and I am an associate professor of medicine and anesthesia um, at UCSF, University of California, San Francisco. And I'm a pulmonologist and intensivist by training, though I'm practicing now uh, only in the ICU. Great. So we're really excited to have you on the podcast today. And today we're going to be talking about subphenotypes. And uh, why do we need to understand ARDS subphenotypes? So ARDS, as you know, Dominique, is really not a specific disease process. Um, It's really a syndrome, a syndromic diagnosis. And that's an intentional, um, was an intentional decision by the people who originally defined ARDS. But as a result, it is um, a very heterogeneous syndrome. Now, you could argue that the use of that heterogeneous syndromic definition has been a really good thing in some ways because we have much better outcomes for ARDS patients thanks to clinical trials that have used that syndromic definition for things like low tidal volume ventilation, fluid conservative therapy, and others. So in that sense, the the broad definition has been a big help. Um, but at the same time, I think there's been increasing concern over the past five to 10 years that the syndromic definition leads to a very biologically heterogeneous groups of patients and that that biological heterogeneity may be part of the reason that so many clinical trials, basically all pharmacologic therapy clinical trials and, and many other clinical trials in ARDS have failed. Um, and so that's what's driven our interest in trying to understand whether there are subphenotypes of ARDS or sort of distinct subgroups of ARDS that might respond differently to therapies. Great. Thanks for that introduction. So um, um, you and your group uh, and collaborators have done a number of research projects. Could you describe for us some of those um, studies and how you have grouped uh, the different uh, ARDS uh, phenotypes? Sure. So we've been using an approach that's called latent class analysis in order to identify uh, subphenotypes within ARDS. And what that is is it's a statistical analytic approach um, that's actually based on a type of analysis that dates back over 100 years called mixture modeling. And the idea behind latent class analysis and mixture modeling is to try to detect whether a group of, of data points, and that can be data points about patients, data points about animals, data points about whatever whatever you're studying, are better a better fit for a model that is one homogenous group of patients or several distinct underlying or latent subgroups of patients. 
And so the nice thing about latent class analysis is that can actually test that hypothesis statistically and tell you, okay, well, two groups is a better fit for this data than one group, or three groups is a better fit than two groups. Um, and so it's actually testing a specific hypothesis. So what we've done is we've taken this approach and we've applied it to uh, several cohorts of patients that come from randomized controlled trials in ARDS. Uh, so we first did this with the um, patients in the low tidal volume arm of the original um, ARDS network low tidal volume trial, the ARMA trial, uh, as well as patients in the alveoli trial done by the ARDS network, which was the low versus high PEEP trial. Uh, and we published those that that paper um, in the Lancet Respiratory Medicine in 2014. And what we found in that paper was that in both of those cohorts. Um, a two-class model or a two-group model was a better fit for the data than a one-class model. So that means that basically the data better fit the hypothesis that there were two distinct underlying groups in the cohort. And the findings were very similar, both in the ARMA cohort, um, the low tidal volume cohort, and the alveoli cohort, the low versus high PEEP cohort. Um, so that was really interesting. There were these two, seemed to be two distinct groups in each of those cohorts. Um, we then went on and asked whether those two groups have different outcomes. And this is a big difference of latent class analysis from sort of standard regression models is that we didn't have to include those those outcomes in, in our modeling. So when the computer was deciding whether there were two groups, one group, or three groups, it was basically just looking at all the patient data from baseline, clinical data and some biomarker data. So we then said, okay, well, now, now we're going to look at the outcomes, and do these two distinct groups have different outcomes? And what we found in both studies is that um, the one of the two groups, which we called a hyperinflammatory group because it had high levels of inflammatory biomarkers as well as more shock and more metabolic acidosis, um, we found that that hyperinflammatory group had consistently worse outcomes in both studies, higher mortality um, and fewer ventilator-free days. So that was really interesting, um, but then I think what, what we were most excited about was when we actually tested whether the two groups responded differently to treatment, and we did that in the alveoli trial of high versus low PEEP, which you may recall, this, this trial was published in the New England Journal in 2004, the original trial, and it was a negative study, so there was no benefit overall of higher versus lower PEEP. And what we found was that actually there was evidence that the two groups responded differently to the higher versus low PEEP strategy, so that that hyperinflammatory group which is actually the smaller group consistently in our studies. It's about 30% or so of the ARDS patients. The, that group seemed to respond better to the high PEEP strategy, whereas the other group, the hypoinflammatory group, which is the larger group, seemed to respond worse to a high PEEP strategy. So I think that was really interesting and got us thinking about how these two groups might have differential treatment responses. Um, we then went on to study this in the FACT trial, the fluid and uh, catheter treatment trial, also done by the ARDS network. Um, that was published last year in the Blue Journal um, and showed, again, very consistent findings in terms of these two distinct subgroups, very similar phenotypes of the subgroups, again, much worse outcomes for the hyperinflammatory group, and then a differential response um, to fluid management. 
So I think the differential response to treatment is is probably the most potentially exciting piece of this. Now, of course, these are secondary analyses of, of randomized controlled trials, but it suggests that if we can try to identify these distinct subphenotypes, that we might have a better chance of finding treatment effects um, in our clinical trials. Uh, these are uh, exploratory analyses. Uh, do we need to do further trials um, having these two groups identified beforehand um, to definitively show that these interventions affect them differently? That's such a great question, Dominique. And I definitely think before we start thinking about treating patients differently based on these findings, we need to prospectively validate them, right? Because, um, you know, there are multiple examples throughout medicine where subgroup analyses that initially seemed promising have ended up being proven wrong in prospective trials. So I definitely think that's a hugely important piece of it. And, and it's important for two reasons. One, to make sure that the differential treatment responses we see are confirmed, um, but also we need to figure out how to identify these subphenotypes prospectively, right? You can't, if I told you, even if I gave you, you know, access to all of my data files on my computer and all of the statistical analysis my statistician and I have done, there's no way right now for you to go to the bedside and say, I'm going to do a latent class analysis and somehow figure out what, what you know, <laughs> What subgroup this patient is in, right? That's not that's not possible um, for a number of reasons. And so, we've been working on trying to determine how we can best come up with a very small number of markers and variables that can classify patients accurately. And we've made some good progress um, on that, um, and, and I can talk more about that if you're interested. But a, a big piece of that is going to be the ability to actually measure some of these biological markers that have been used in the latent class analysis in real time. Um, we have found consistently in these studies that uh, particularly some of these inflammatory markers like interleukin-8, soluble TNF receptor 1, protein C, which is a, um, you know, involved in coagulation, cascade, and inflammation. Um, so, that those markers are really critical to identifying the subphenotypes, but of course we can't measure those right now in clinical practice, nor is there a way to do this rapidly. So advancing our ability to identify the molecular phenotype of patients in real time um, is also going to be critical to uh, being able to integrate these types of findings into patient care. I'd imagine that would require a lot of collaborations uh, with molecular diagnostics and uh, big data. Yeah, absolutely. And so, um, you know, we have been working in my group um, on using various different types of machine learning approaches to try to come up with the best possible model. Um, and one of the postdoctoral fellows in my group, Pratik Sinha, is going to be presenting some of that data this year uh, at ATS. And then how do you choose which um, marker that you're going to pursue? For example, we knew back in the day that uh, getting a lactate or a troponin was very difficult and time-consuming, but because of the advances in technology now, if you order a lactate or a troponin, it's back within half an hour or an hour. Do you think that some biomarkers might be left on the wayside and don't get explored because we're trying to pursue one rather than the other? And how do you think we should be approaching that? 
Yeah, that's a great question, Dominique, and that's something that our group is really interested in as well. In part, we've we've worked with the biomarkers that we have, um, that we've published on and that we've included in these analyses because they had previously been measured in these um, samples from these randomized control trials. So in some senses, the biomarkers that are in these models are there because of opportunity. Uh, now, they were measured for very reasonable reasons with for, you know, hypothesis-directed research because they were thought to be important in the pathogenesis of ARDS. But nevertheless, it was not how we set out when we were, you know, we didn't set out to design these studies a priori choosing necessarily these eight or ten biomarkers as the best biomarkers. So might there be other biomarkers that are really good for this? And I think it's a really great question. So I'm really interested in lactate, which you mentioned. Um, We haven't measured this yet, but might lactate really differ between these two subphenotypes and help us to classify these patients somehow at the bedside? Absolutely. And I think one of the areas my group is focusing on is trying to take a broad approach to understanding the biology of these subphenotypes so that we can potentially identify um, biomarkers that are potentially, you know, even more accurate than those we've already uh, found at discriminating between these two groups. And then do you think we'll need to do serial measurements um, of a biomarker? For example, when patients come in uh, with sepsis or ARDS, it's very difficult to actually know when this patient went into that syndrome do you think we'll be monitoring like every couple of hours or every day to see if this patient has gone into the inflammatory form of ARDS or if they've gone out of it? Yeah, that's a great question, Dominique. Um, so we have some data that um, we presented in abstract form at ATS and um, is under review right now that does suggest that um, the subphenotypes are quite stable over the first three days, at least in the randomized control trials that we've studied so far. So um, I think probably because most ARDS clinical trials are focused on relatively early um, enrollment and treatment. I, I think that probably won't be necessary. I suspect that one-time measurement um, will be enough. But again, this is one of those questions I think will be important to validate in a prospective format. I get you. And then in terms of pitfalls, so what, what do you think are going to be the major pitfalls in using ARDS subphenotypes? We've covered several of them already. Yeah, so tell me a little bit more about what you mean by pitfalls. Uh, for example, um, uh, clinicians who may be using phenotypes uh, to manage their patients, so what challenges could they encounter when managing patients? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, I think in part this is going to be incumbent on on us as researchers who are trying to understand these subphenotypes and make them clinically applicable to minimize those pitfalls as we go forward. Because right now, these are research subphenotypes, right? They really don't have um, a way that we can 
operationalize them right now in terms of clinical care. So it's going to be incumbent on us to try to make that process as easy as possible. So um, we're trying to, in my group, come up with, you know, these parsimonious models that make it easy to classify patients based on just a few data points so that you don't need, you know, the 35 variables that we've used to, to apply latent class to determine um, which category a patient falls in. And then I think we'll have to think as a research community, if these subphenotypes advance to the point where we can do clinical trials, um, you know, as to how we want to incorporate them into prospective clinical trials. So does it make sense to do a clinical trial in all patients with ARDS um, and then with a pre-hoc, you know, hypothesis that we're going to look for differential effects by subphenotype, or for some molecules, might it make sense to focus just on one subphenotype, but then what if we miss an effect in the other subphenotype? So I think, you know, as we get closer to being able to actually implement these models and really identify patients in real time, we're going to have to think very carefully about what the... um, the wisest way is to incorporate these into clinical trial design going forward. Well, your work's definitely going to be fascinating in the future. Um, I want to ask about um, one of the things that we encountered during our training, this concept concept of uh, splitting and lumping, and and obviously subphenotypes definitely falls into the splitting category. What are the... um, uh, how, how do you balance them? Because in one way, we want to try and get as maximum benefit for as many patients as possible. And the other, we want to offer personalized uh, treatment. Um, how are we going to balance uh, splitting and lumping all these patients? Yeah, it's such a good question. And I think if you got 10 different ARDS experts in the room, you'd probably get 10 different answers. And I don't know that we have any way to know which one is right. Um, I think as we were talking about earlier, there are some clear benefits to lumping, right? Look at low tidal volume ventilation, right? This is now the standard of care for our ARDS patients. Uh, That major advance in caring for ARDS patients came out of a trial in which all ARDS patients were enrolled. Um, similarly, we could talk about fluid conservative therapy, right? Now, that that was a trial in which all patients were enrolled. Our data suggests that there may actually be some, some differences in how these subphenotypes respond to fluid conservative therapy. Um, but overall, we've seen mortality in ARDS randomized controlled trials, at least, decline a lot over the past two decades. And so I think that's evidence that the syndromic definition has some benefits, right, that lumping the patients together does have some benefits. On the other hand, basically every pharmacologic trial in ARDS, including a lot of pharmacotherapies that seems to cure mouse ARDS, that seems to be really effective in preclinical studies, uh, basically every pharmacologic therapy other than cisatricurium has failed. And cisatricurium, I think you could argue, may be more of a supportive therapy in a way in that it's, you know, helping patients by mitigating ventilator-induced lung injury. So, you know, pharmaceutical companies have spent tens and hundreds of millions of dollars probably on these pharmacotherapy trials in ARDS with no benefit. So, to me, that suggests that for pharmacotherapy trials, at least, we really need to 
start thinking about some different approaches rather than having, you know, another, yet another decade of trying the same old approach in ARDS um, and watching it fail. So I don't think there's a perfect answer to when lump and when split, but I do think for pharmacotherapy trials in particular, we should think carefully about whether particular subphenotypes may benefit. That being said, I think we have to be a little bit careful in um, thinking that we can always predict that. So, Nula Meyer, who is a faculty member at University of Pennsylvania in pulmonary critical care and a terrific physician scientist, published a paper in critical care medicine last year on a secondary analysis of anakinra, which was the recombinant uh, human IL-1RA drug given in sepsis. Now, this is in sepsis, not in ARDS, but um, Nula's interesting hypothesis was that the effects of the recombinant IL-1-RA might differ based on the patient's endogenous IL-1-RA levels, which is an interesting hypothesis. And if you had asked me beforehand, I would have thought, well, maybe for the patients with low endogenous IL-1-RA, when you give them this exogenous IL-1-RA, they'll be the ones that benefit. But what she found was actually the opposite of that. So she found that the patients who had the high endogenous IL-1-RA were the ones that benefited from the exogenous IL-1-RA. Well, so that's it's completely opposite to that's completely right? opposite to so, what you would have thought, right? Yeah, exactly. And so I think that study is so important because I think number one, it it's some additional proof of principle that targeting the biology underlying these heterogeneous syndromes may be really important for pharmacologic treatment effect. But two, I think it really cautions us that we have to be careful and thinking that we can predict how that's going to work. And so um, that gets back to what I was saying earlier about thinking about how we're going to design prospective clinical trials, being aware of subphenotypes, um, and being um, just a little bit cautious and mindful that even though we think we may understand the biology of a particular pathway or a particular molecule, that the effects may not always be exactly what we anticipate. And then in the next uh, three to five years, even 10 years, how do you see um, diagnostics and therapeutics changing in ARDS? So what, what, what can junior clinicians expect in the next five to 10 years? Well, I really hope that we will be able to uh, do more in real time to identify the patient's molecular subphenotypes. Um, if you think about it, a lot of the tests that we use in our everyday practice, you brought up a couple earlier, lactate and troponin, that were not commonly used in clinical practice when I was in medical school and now are part of our everyday routine when we're caring for patients in the ICU. So I think it's highly possible that if we can prove their utility, it's a little bit of a catch-22, but if we can prove that additional ways of, of biologically phenotyping our patients in the ICU um, have an impact on their clinical outcome that I would hope that we'll be using those in the next five to 10 years. And if you think about the field of oncology as a contrast, right, people don't think about breast cancer or melanoma or any of these you know, oncologic syndromic diagnoses anymore. They don't they don't determine treatment just based on that diagnosis, right? They identify the molecular phenotype of the breast tumor and that has a pivotal role in determining what 
chemotherapy is going to be effective. And so they're a couple of decades ahead of us in oncology. Um, But my hope is that as we understand the biology of these heterogeneous syndromes that we take care of in the ICU better, that we will get closer over the next five to 10 years to being able to target our treatments to the actual biology of what patients are experiencing and not just their sort of clinical syndromic diagnosis. Oh, that's definitely something to look forward to. Um, as we wind up, uh, Dr. Kelsey, I was going to ask you um, whether you could share maybe two or three top polls that you would want to impart to fellows or junior faculty uh, in the field of critical medicine and things that you learned as uh, you were progressing to become an established researcher that they would maybe benefit from. Yeah, that's a that's a great question, Dominique. Um, you know, I think I would I would give a couple. One is to think about the questions that bother you when you're taking care of patients in the ICU, in the clinic, whatever the setting is um, that you're taking care of patients in. Think about the the questions that bother you that you wish you had a good answer to, um, and. If you're involved in in research and quality improvement, et cetera, try to make those questions that really stick out to you as questions that'd be useful to have an answer to. Um, Try to make that the focus of what you're doing because I think if you keep that tie to the clinical care, and this is obviously for people who are doing more clinically and translationally focused research, if you, but if you keep that focus, and I think you'll you'll have a passion for trying to find out the answer that um, that will help sustain and and motivate your research going forward. I started my fellowship training with an interest in trying to understand why it is that only some patients um, who have a risk factor for ARDS go on to develop ARDS. Why was it that only some septic patients or some pneumonia patients went on to develop ARDS and not all of them? And while I certainly haven't found the answer to that question (laughs) yet, it was keeping that tie to these clinically relevant questions um, that really helped uh, to motivate me. So I guess that's one one pearl I would give. Um, and then um, a second pearl is for, again, for people who are uh, involved in, in research and um, and and quality improvement and, and even clinical care, um, you know, that really going by the philosophy that a rising tide lifts all boats um, has been an important guiding principle for me in my career. And what that means to me is that um, working together with your colleagues, celebrating their successes, um, and helping to advance science in a collaborative and team-focused way um, will, in the end, be helpful to you and your career. Um, So sometimes academic medicine can feel um, competitive or... um, intimidating in that way. And I think that if you focus on trying to advance the science and trying to work together as a team, that that will um, help to not only improve the product, but but make your path forward easier in academics as well. Thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure to chat with you, uh, Dr. Kelfi. A big thank you to Dr. Carolyn Kelfi. And a big thank you to all of you for listening to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective Podcast. 
I'm Dominic Pepper for the American Thoracic Society.